Okay, let's open up our Bibles. To Genesis. Genesis, the 12th chapter. I know your Bibles are just flopping open to Romans already. You know? Yeah, open to the 12th chapter of Genesis. Now, we've been looking at, uh, for the past couple of months, Paul's great doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. He spelled it out for us at the end of the third chapter, and then he's moved into the fourth chapter of Romans, and he has pointed to Abraham as the great classic example of a man who is saved because he believes God. A man who is made right. A man who's on God's side because he believed God. God brought his word to bear in Abraham's life, and Abraham believed him. And God credited that to Abraham as righteousness. He made him right with him on the basis of his belief. Now, people today, or actually throughout all of history, if, and the majority of people believe this, that there is a God, most people believe that. There's an innate need and hunger to believe that there's a God. Now, if a person believes that, then it only makes sense for them to want to be on his side, to want to be right with him. Does that make sense to you? If you believe there's a God, doesn't it make sense to want to be right with him, to want to be okay with him, to want to have him think you're okay? Sure. Now, there are lots of people who don't believe in the God because they don't want to be accountable, and so they kind of write him off. That doesn't mean that he doesn't exist. He exists. But if you survey the whole history of man, you see man has this incredible need to worship. And you see all manner of religious forms, all manner of philosophies, all manner of things that man resorts to to provide some means whereby he can feel he's okay with this God that he believes in. All right? Now, Paul says that it's by faith. And in the chapters we've been looking at, Paul literally destroys all the means that men have come up with over the ages, over the millennia, all avenues whereby the men have tried to make themselves right with God. And the first thing he says, and we see this in the first eight verses of the fourth chapter of Romans, Paul says it's not by works. Is a man made right with God? Does a man get on God's good side by working for it, by earning it? Paul says no, it's not by works. And yet, there are millions upon millions of people who are trying to do good stuff in our country, it boils down to being generous, to being benevolent, to uh, giving away your time, to donating your energy and your influence and so forth to good social common causes, right? People are giving away money. They, I have a friend who's, who gives away lots of money to uh, various good causes and charities. And he believes that by doing this stuff that he's right in God's sight, his good works. Paul says, no, not at all. 
Not at all. You see, people believe and understand that, they're, that they do bad stuff. Isn't that true? Everybody knows they do bad stuff. And so they have this hope of doing more good stuff to outweigh the bad stuff. So that if there is a God, even on the outside chance there is a God, and if there is a place called heaven, and if there is a place called hell, no one wants to go to hell. But if all this is true, then it would make sense to do more good stuff than bad stuff in the hopes that the good stuff will outweigh the bad stuff. So that when we do die, and we do go to this place of judgment, that God stands there and says, aha, I see you did bad stuff and you did good stuff. But you did more good stuff than bad stuff. So you can come in. That's what people are trusting in. Paul says, no. It's not of works that any man can boast. There's no bragging. The second argument and the second issue and the second arena which people turn to and trust in to try to ensure or assure themselves that they're on God's right side is religiosity. People get religious. There's a difference between religion and relationship. Do you know that? We're talking about a relationship with God through Christ. A trusting relationship. A relationship by faith. Not just religious practices. And what does Paul do in the second, third, and fourth chapters? He talks about the, the, the futility of trusting in the right of circumcision. Now he's addressing the Jews, who are the religious people of the age. And they're his predominant enemy. And he draws out the principle, he addresses the issue of circumcision. The Jews would trust in circumcision. The very fact that they possess the mark, the physical mark on their body, and we're not even dealing with women, because women weren't even addressed in that culture. Men were the predominant issue, and circumcision was given to men. And a woman was, when she married, was brought in under the covenant of circumcision. But they just trusted in the very fact that they possessed the mark. And the fact that they possessed the mark was good enough. That's all they needed. They were circumcised. They were in. And Paul says, no. And many people today trust in being religious. They trust in rituals and they trust in the fact that they go to church regularly. They trust in the fact that, well, I read my Bible every day. Or uh, they trust that they've been baptized. Or they trust in this or that. And, and all it's all external. There's no, been no change in their internal life. We're all aware of the proverbial businessman who comes to church, even sits on, the, on a church council. And while he's in that environment, he's upstanding and upright and moral, but he gets out in the world and he's just as corrupt as the next person. No difference. So it's not by works. It's not by being religious. And lastly, thirdly, we looked last week, it's not by keeping the law. A man is not justified with God. He's not made right with God by keeping the Ten Commandments, by being moral. It, it doesn't happen. Why? Well, Paul quotes Deuteronomy. He quote, quotes the law itself. You've got to keep the whole law perfectly every day. If you break it at one point, one time you've broken the whole law, he says it becomes fruitless. That's why he says cursed is everyone who tries to keep the law. You, you just can't do it. Part of the curse is you can't do it. So it's a man doesn't get right with God by doing good works, by being religious, or by keeping the law. You say, well, what else is there? What other avenue is there? Faith. 
What do you mean faith? You believe God. I mean, that's it? Yep. When God's word comes to you, you read it, you understand it, you take it to heart, you begin to apply it to your life, you believe God, you begin to act on it, he changes you. Not only does he make you right with him, he makes you over again. He gives you new life. He makes you right. Gives you righteousness. By faith. What's faith? Faith is nothing more. It's, it's just the link between God's great grace and power and his promise to meet human need. Faith is the link up. I believe. And when I believe, and you know when you believe, don't you, in your heart? As opposed to when you don't believe? You know when somebody tells you something, you say, oh, yeah, I believe you. <laughs> right? You know that. You know you're not really believing. But you know when you really do believe, and you throw yourself into that thing with that person. Because you believe them. You're there wholeheartedly. That links up God's grace and his power to meet the promise, to fulfill the promise, to meet our human need. And what's our greatest human need? To get saved. People put that down, they decry that, they, they, they joke. To get saved. Eternity in hell is a long time. Our greatest need is to be saved. Our greatest need is to be forgiven of our sins and to be made right with God. And God offers that if we would just simply believe him. And that's the whole issue that Paul bangs on and bangs on and bangs on. And as we look into the fourth chapter of Romans this morning, after we finish with Genesis, Paul is going to summarize this whole thing. And again, he points to Abraham and uses Abraham as the classic example of faith, a man who's saved by faith. Paul summarizes it in the episode with the birth of, of Isaac and it demonstrates that it's not by human ability. It's not by anything a man can do. It's by God's power and God's power alone. It's something God does when men believe him, when men trust him. Isn't that awesome? Absolutely awesome. Let's look at the 12th chapter. We're going to survey um, Abram's history a little bit. I want you to get to meet him some. Uh, most of us, when we hear about Abram, if we've not read these passages very closely, and we just read what Paul writes about Abram and uh, what the New Testament says about him and the writer of the Hebrews, uh, we see that, God, this Abram, man, he is, this guy, he's superhuman. He's awesome. My faith could never measure up. And yet the Bible says that we're saved by the same kind of faith that Abraham was saved by. Now, if that's so, don't we need then to explore Abraham's faith and begin to understand it and analyze it? And as we analyze it and understand it, then we can begin to live and, and apply that kind of faith. So it's a worthy exercise for us to survey uh, Abram's experience in the uh, chapters 12 through 17 in Genesis. And we're just going to look at a couple of the episodes. But as we do, I want you to see, as he steps out and believes God, that there is going to occur into his life several episodes of trial and testing. Now, what does James say in the first chapter of his epistle? Doesn't he say, count it all grief when you encounter various trials? Does he say that? No, he says what? 
Count it all joy. Wait a minute. Joy. You mean I'm supposed to be joyful when there's problems in my life? Yes. Count it all joy. Why? Because you know that these things are there for the development of perseverance, for the strengthening of your faith. Those things aren't there just out of coincidence. You're not struggling through these issues. They're not in your life for no reason at all. They're to develop perseverance. They're to strengthen your faith. They're to make you more godly. You say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is that true? Yes. And we're going to look and see the same thing evidenced in Abram's life. Now, in the 11th chapter, the latter part of the 11th chapter, we meet Abram and his whole family, his father, Terah. They are non-believers. Remember, Abram is, a non, is an uncircumcised Gentile who comes out of an idolatrous pagan background. Okay? He wasn't born Jewish. He lives and his family lives in a place called Ur, U-R, Ur of the Chaldees. It's a, it's a location in the lower Mesopotamian Valley. It's about roughly in the area of present-day Iran and Iraq, in that area. At that time, it was very fertile. It was, it was a beautiful area to live in, very lush, not desert like it is today. That's where they lived. They leave Ur of the Chaldees, and there's no real clear understanding why, but they're headed towards Canaan. Some authors think that God prompted them, God spoke to them and said, go leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to the land of Canaan. And indeed, in the first part of the 12th chapter, we see that reinforced, certainly. But they, if, they, if indeed they get the call down there, and they leave, they begin the journey towards the land of Canaan, the promised land, they stop off in a place called Haran, and there they play, stay for 15 years. Now, there's some parallels to that in our own lives. God calls us to this great journey, right? Walk by faith. And some of us take detours. We stop off in Haran for some length of time. And Abram's there for 15 years. When he leaves Ur, he's 60. By the time he leaves Haran to go back, continue his journey to the land of Canaan, he's 75 years old. We're also told that his wife, Sarai, is barren. So they have no children. Now look with me in the 12th chapter. The Lord said to Abram, he comes to, comes to Abram now, we have a clear picture, a, a clear statement of the promise now. The Lord comes to Abram and he says, leave your country, now whether that be Ur or Haran, whichever one it is, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land that I'll show you. Now think with me. Here you are. You're pretty wealthy. You've got identity from family, a whole nation you, you've grown up with, your roots and heritage. You've got everything you need. You've got your own gods you worship. God comes and says, now look it. I want you to leave all this stuff. I want you to leave everything you're trusting in. Everything that means security to you. Everything that gives your life identity and significance. That makes you feel safe. I want you to leave that stuff. I want you to not trust in it. And I want you to transfer your allegiance and your trust to me. And then I want you to go to a place that I'll show you when you get there. Would you do that? I'm not sure. But, you know, 
there are great parallels. The Lord causes us to do that now. He comes to us. He says, what are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? You're trusting in your money? Trusting in your job? Trusting in some man, some woman? Trusting in what? Don't trust in those things, he says. Leave those things. Hold them lightly. Trust in me. Trust in me. Go to a place, enter into a journey to go to a place that I'll show you when you get there. You know what that place is for us? Heaven. We're on the same journey Abram was on. And we're to walk by faith just like Abram does. Now look at this. Here's the promise. I will make you into a great nation. Now God says the same thing to us. He says, I'm going to bless your socks off. He says, I'll make you a great name. I'll give you a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I'll curse them. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Now those things apply to us. We talked about that last week, the promise. Those things apply to us, too. Because we're of the faith of Abraham. Now, Abram weighs all this stuff, and we find out that he says, no, I don't think so, God. I'm going to stay where I am. Thank you anyway. Is that what it says? No. So Abram left as the Lord had told him. He left. Now look what happens. He steps out. He starts walking, trusting. Okay? He doesn't exactly do it as the Lord wants him to. As fully as the Lord, because he takes Lot with him. Remember God said, leave your people and your father's household. He takes his nephew Lot with him, and that's going to get him in trouble. That's going to be a source of one of the trials. Now, when God calls us, we don't always leave everything behind, do we? Sometimes we take some baggage with us, don't we? And doesn't that baggage, sooner or later, get us in trouble? Oh, yeah, sure does. Anyway, here he goes. He starts his journey. The first thing, he's left Haran. He's gone down to the land of Canaan. He gets in the land of Canaan. The first thing he encounters is a famine. God, come on. I left this very lush area, all the food you could want. You bring me down here, and there's a famine. Come on. Do you ever think you've been misled? <laughs> God calls you to walk by faith, and you know, the first thing you walk into is a famine in your life. Things begin to go haywire. You go, wait a minute. You lose your job. You know, some crazy stuff happens. You begin to think, wait a minute, did I, am I doing the right thing here? Did I make the right? Did I turn left when I should have turned right? A famine. Now, Abram, the writer goes on to say that Abram goes down to Egypt. Egypt was the breadbasket of the of the world at that part of the world at that time, and it historically has been in that in that in those eras in those ages. And uh, whenever there was a famine, and the famines would cycle regularly through the land of Palestine, and whenever there was a famine, all the people would go down to Egypt. They would get food down there, they'd stay down there, and when the famine would be over, then they'd come back to Palestine. Well, this is what happens. Everybody goes to Egypt. Well, Abram's down here. There's a famine in the land. He figures, well, I'll do like everybody else does. I'll go to Egypt. Would you go to Egypt? There's a famine in the land. Would you do what everybody else does? Good question, huh? Now, there's no hint here, uh, no evidence, no understanding at all if Abram says, Lord, there's a famine in the land. I don't know if you'd noticed. 
but there's a famine in the land, what should I do? Should I go to Egypt with everybody else, which is the obvious conclusion, or should I wait here and trust you and trust that you'll provide for me? He doesn't pray, so there's no answer. Abram runs on down to Egypt. Now, though he does, you don't see a bolt of lightning come out of the sky and say, Abram, you dummy, you did something stupid. Now, we may think he did something stupid, but God doesn't rebuke him. God doesn't come down and beat him up. Doesn't pounce on him. I don't know about you, but that's comforting to me. I make all kinds of dumb choices. Doesn't Proverbs say, in all your ways, what? Acknowledge him, and he will what? Yeah. You see? We do that, don't we? There's a famine in our life, we run out of Egypt. We even stop and say, wait a minute, Lord. Lord, I'll wait here. He goes down to Egypt. He's already hit a famine. That's the first test of his faith. He gets down to Egypt. Now, Sarai is his wife. Sarai is 65 years old, or a little bit older probably, by this time. Sarai is an unusually beautiful woman. She does not look her age. And Abram knows this. And he tells her, he says, look, when we go down there to Egypt, Pharaoh is going to hear about your great beauty, and he's a womanizer, and he's probably going to want to take you away. And if he finds out that you're my wife, he'll kill me to get you. So he says, tell him you're my sister. He's willing to, to fend her off so that it save his own neck. Great faith, would you say? Aren't you encouraged by Abram? Great guy, isn't he, gals? Would you like to trust your life into a guy's hands like this? And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. He goes down there, saves his own neck. She gets off into Pharaoh's court. And you remember the promise when God said to Abram, he says, those who bless you, I'll bless them. And those who curse you, I will curse them. God gets on Pharaoh's case. Not Abram's. He gets on Pharaoh's case. He, he smites Pharaoh until Pharaoh realizes it's because he's got Sarai in his house. He says, get her out of here. Get her back to Abram. So you see, right away, he's got, a, he's got a famine, and he's got a pharaoh he's had to deal with. Two tests to his faith. Now, he's keeping his eyes on the promise. He doesn't quit and run back to Haran or Ur the Chaldees. He's still in the process here. The third thing comes, arises as a result of his own foolishness of taking Lot along with him. Then he has a fight on his hands after they come back from Egypt they come back into the land of Canaan, and Lot, has, his nephew's got all these herdsmen, all these, all these flocks, and Abram's got all the same. And there's a big fight arises between their flocks and their herdsmen. So they've got to separate. Not only do they separate, but Lot goes and settles in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, down in the Fertile Plain area. And Abram stays up in the hill country. It's not very long before, before Lot gets in trouble, and some kings come down, and they raid Sodom and Gomorrah, and they carry off Lot and all his possessions. Word gets back to Abram. He has to rush off and rescue Lot. None of this would have happened if he, if he hadn't brought Lot along with him. You know, we always pay a heavy price when we bring some baggage with us. But inevitably, we always bring baggage. Now, here's the great picture I want you to see. Lot, or I'm sorry, Abram still has his eyes on the promise. He's not quit. He's not given up. He's not gone back. 
he's out there doing, is anybody here sail? You know, you're sailing. Bob, you sail. Anybody else do ever do sailing? A few of you. Okay, well, most of you probably aren't going to relate to this, but let me use this as an example anyway. When you sail, when you go from like here to, from point A to point B, maybe from here to Catalina or someplace, you know, and you're on a sailboat, not a powerboat, you're sailing. You're subject to the winds and the currents and so forth. You don't go in a straight line. Am I right, Bob? You don't go in a straight line? Not always. That's right. Generally, you find yourself doing a, a maneuver called tacking, right? That's kind of going back and forth, moving the sails back and forth. And the boat kind of zigzags its way until it gets to its destination. That's called tacking. I used to do some sailing, so I know about that. I got hit in the head with a boom one time. <laughs> I learned to duck. <laughs> Guy said, we're tacking. And I said, what? Wham! <laughs> got this boom right in my head. and almost knocked me in the water. Shark-infested water. <laughs> Aren't you impressed? <laughs> but here's Abram. Abram's tacking back and forth. He's got the promise in view. He's holding on. He's not quitting. But he isn't exactly perfect, is he? He's making this mistake. He's going over there. He's going over here. He's going over there. But he's making some progress. This goes on for 25 years. Doesn't that thrill your heart? Now, I don't know about you, but this comforts me. Because in my walk, uh, though I have the promise in view, though I walk by faith, I find myself swinging way out here to the right. And then I cry out, oh, Lord, bring me back. And he brings me back, and I swing way out to the left. <laughs> and then I swing way out to the right again, you know. But every way I'm making a little bit of progress. I'm moving ahead, but I'm tacking. My Christian life is going back and forth and back and forth. There's all kinds of trials, all kinds of struggles, all kinds of issues coming up that I never even expected, changes of the wind and so forth, that are designed to what? Produce perseverance, to strengthen my faith. I'll get there. Abraham's going to get there, but he's got all this stuff going on. Well, not only does he... Does he go down to Egypt and have to deal with Pharaoh? He comes back into the land. He has this fight with Lot and his group. And about this time, he gets a little fearful. He begins to experience some fear now. And over in the 15th chapter, God comes to him and says, Don't be afraid. And we get that way, don't we? We get way out there. Stuff starts to get out of control. And we start freaking out. And God comes and says, Don't be afraid. Trust me. I'm your salvation. I'm your shield. I'm your very great reward. Me. He's calling us to get our eyes back on him. All right? So here he is. He deals with fear. So he's had a famine. He's had a pharaoh. He's had a fight. Now he's had fear. Now, in, the verse, in chapter 16, we see foolishness. This is really good. Now you've got to picture this. God has come. Abram now is somewhere around, the, around 85 years old. Sarah is 75. Okay? He was uh, 75. Ten years earlier, God had given him the promise back in the 12th chapter of Genesis that he would bless him. And Abram understood this to mean that he was going to have some physical descendants. And he knew that he had to have at least a son, one son, to start the whole process off with. But now it's been ten years. Nothing has happened yet. 
Ten years. Abram and Sarah are sitting around one day in the tent. <laughs> and they're talking about this. Talking about the promise. And all of a sudden it dawns on them this. Well, of course. God's waiting for us to do our part. That thought occurs to every Christian. You know? I, I talk to people, you know, this, this guy will come and says, oh, my wife left me. My wife left me. The guy, as a result, the guy comes to the Lord. This was my case. The guy just comes to the Lord as a result of all this. He humbles himself. He starts reading the Bible. He starts attending church every time the doors are open. He does all this stuff. And he makes this mad rush to convince his wife who's left him He's changed. No, he may be changed, but she's not about to believe him, is she? No. You know, he's got to, and he comes to me and says, what should I do? What should I do? I said, don't do anything. Don't do anything. Wait and pray. These guys listen? No. No. They don't wait. They don't sit quietly. They don't trust in the Lord. They don't grow and mature. They run off and they say, look, I've changed. I've changed. You've got to come back to me. <laughs> and what do they do? They drive her off further. Here's Abram and Sarah. You know, well, maybe God wants us to do something. No. 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 But no, do they do? Yeah. You know what they do? They sit around. They figure out. They come up with this strategy. They say, you know what? Sarah says, look it. Take my maid, Hagar, my servant. We'll just use her body. <laughs> this is the ancient form of uh, artificial insemination and <laughs> surrogate mothering and all this stuff, right? <laughs> take my maid. Take her into the tent tonight. And then we'll see if God blesses us. So Abram listens to his wife. Now there's times, men, when you need to listen to your wife. This is not one of those times. Abram says, okay, he takes Hagar into the tent. Probably didn't enjoy it at all. Takes her into the tent. They have a child nine months later, and the child's a boy. And they say, oh, it was obviously God's plan. <laughs> you see how we, so, we are so run by circumstances? It was obviously God's plan. It's a boy. And for the next 13 years now, Abraham believes that Ishmael is the one. And for 13 years, he dotes on Ishmael. Not God's plan. But nowhere does God come along and smack Abraham and say, you jerk. You dummy. No. Abraham's out there tacking. <laughs> He's going to get there one way or another. 
And in the meantime, you know, all kinds of stuff is going on in his life. God just is up there working with him still. He's still got the promise in view. He's not let go of it. Doing some dumb things, but he's not let go of it. And God doesn't rebuke him. There's no place in the passage where God quails on him. God lets him reap the harvest of some of his foolishness. But God doesn't come down and blast him. He's a loving father. Takes care of his children. So Ishmael is born. He's had a famine. He's had a pharaoh. He's had fear. He's had a fight. He's had foolishness. All these things are challenges to his faith. They're causing him to grow. They're causing him to learn how to trust in God. As he works through all these issues... Now, in the fourth chapter of Galatians, there's a passage that's very instructive. Paul picks up on Ishmael and Isaac, the two offspring. And he categorically uses them to illustrate the principle we're talking about this morning. That salvation is not a result of human ability and human effort. The fulfillment of the process and the promise is not a result of human effort. The fulfillment of God's promise is the result of faith. And it's a supernatural act of God. That's what it is. And he uses Ishmael and Isaac to demonstrate that. Now look with me at the 17th chapter of Genesis, and then we'll go over to uh, Romans. We're not going to finish this morning. The 17th chapter. It's here where God gives the right of circumcision to Abram to confirm his promise. And then he does an interesting thing. He changes Abram's name. Abram means, in Hebrew, um, father of many. That's a very loose translation. Father of many. Now you have to see this. Here's Abram. He's a very wealthy man. In fact, he has dug wells and he has settled in the land of Canaan. He dwells in tents, but he has settled himself down, and he is right on a major trade route from Damascus down through the land of Palestine on into Egypt and back again. And everybody that comes down through on a caravan, all the major trades come on this trade route, and they stop off at Abram's camel stop. Okay? His watering holes. They stop off overnight for refreshment and so forth. Now, you got to picture this. Here's Abram. And Eastern people get very personal. Middle Eastern people. They ask all kinds of questions. Nothing is sacred. They'll talk about anything. They'll, you get around Mr. Middle Eastern people, they'll just start asking you questions. Don't be offended. You know, we're very private. But they just talk about everything. They get everything out in the open. And so they come along, and they, they so here comes the, the, care of the guy that has the caravan. He stops off at Abraham's place, waters his camels and so forth. He goes in and introduces him to Abraham in Abraham's tent. And he says, ah, Abram, father of many. And they trade all of their niceties and so forth. And he gets around, and he says, father of many. How many? None. Now you got to know, this is going on for years. Father of many, none. Finally, he gets Ishmael. One, I'm on the way. Making progress towards being father of many, right? Now here's God. God comes along and says, okay, Abram, I'm making this covenant, giving you circumcision. This is the seal between you and me. This is the deal, this is the bargain. He says, in addition, I'm going to change your name. I'm going to change your name from Abram, father of many, to Abraham, 
father of multitudes. <laughs> Great, God. Thanks. <laughs> Another test to Abram's faith, would you say? I mean, he's got one now. Father of multitudes. Oh, man, Lord. Okay, if you say so, he believes God. He takes the name. You see how his faith is growing? He believes God. Okay, if you say Father of Multitudes, I'll take the name. Father of Multitudes. People come down on the tray. They stop at Abraham and say, Oh, Father of Multitudes. How many? One. (laughs) Awesome, huh? But in addition, here's what he does. Look at this. Verse 15 of the 17th chapter. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife... Now remember, Sarah's been out of here. She's been in the background. Incidentally, when Hagar had Ishmael, you got to believe that Hagar kind of strutted her stuff around camp. And Sarah had to look at Ishmael and Hagar for 13 years. I got to know, and you got to know, that Sarah wasn't exactly excited to have them around. (laughs) Because to be barren, a woman barren in that culture was looked on as being cursed. And here's Hagar, her maid, who provided a son to her husband. A little sticky, wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Culture hasn't changed that much, has it, gals? (laughs) And he says, as for Sarai, your wife... You are no longer to call her Sarah. I'm going to change her name too. We're going to call her Sarah. Means princess. She's going to have a family. Sarah's going to be in the family way. She's going to be called, she says, I I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I want you to notice something. Abram is getting greater and greater revelation, wouldn't you say? The picture is becoming clearer and clearer, isn't it? You see, if you respond to the revelation God gives you, he'll give you more revelation. And ultimately, we have the clearest revelation in the New Testament, in the person of Jesus Christ, of who God is and what his nature is like. He says, she'll have a son, and I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come for her. And Abraham bowed down to the ground and worshipped God and said, Lord, thank you. Praise your holy name. Lord, for being a faithful God. <laughs> no? no? Somebody says? What does Abraham do? Wow. <laughs> he cracks up. His face is down on the ground, man. He's going, oh, Lord. <laughs> You haven't looked recently. I'm a hundred. She's ninety. <laughs> you better take a second look at Ishmael. That's what he says. Read it. He says, "Oh God, you better take a second look at Ishmael. That's the one." I'm a hundred. She's nine. No way. He laughs. He's still tacking, isn't he? (laughs) We're out there tacking together, aren't we? Turn now to the fourth chapter of Romans. We're never going to finish. Oh, Lord. I probably have to keep you till 1230. 
<laughs> it's a good thing I didn't hear any groaning going on out there. Now look at The promises come to Abraham in its clearest form. He knows he's going to have a son by Sarah, and he know. And incidentally, God has also told him what to call uh, the son. He says, "Name him Isaac." You know what Isaac means? He laughs. Every time they look at Isaac, every time they speak his name, they're going to remind that they laughed. He laughs. Does God have a sense of humor? Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Name him, he laughs. Look at verse 18. So he's expecting the son. He's waiting for the birth of Isaac. It's going to be in nine months. Against all hope. Against all hope. Humanly speaking, this was absolutely impossible. There is no way in the world this can happen. Against all hope, in hope, he believed. He believed. And so became the father of many nations, as it had been promised to him, so shall your offspring be. He believed. It had been 25 years. He'd been tacking for 25 years. He'd never lost sight of the promise. He kept on. He never bailed. He never quit. He never went back. He just kept on. He made some mistakes along the way, yes. God rebuked him, no. God kept working with him. God kept working with him. Oh, that comforts my heart. That encourages me in my walk with the Lord. Do you remember Peter? Remember when the, uh, I think it's in Mark's Gospel, when Jesus sends the disciples across the Sea of Galilee, he says, go on ahead and I'll catch up to you. And they're out there in the middle of the night, in, right in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and it's dark. And the wind is blowing. And they're nervous, they're scared, and all of a sudden, to add to their fright, they see this, what they think is an apparition coming towards them on the water. <gasps> a ghost? Oh, no! They really start to freak out. These are brave men. But then Peter looks and he says, No. No, I think that's Jesus. And he hollers out, he says, Jesus, is that you? <laughs> you know, Peter has sharper eyesight than all the other disciples. You knew that, didn't you? <laughs> he calls out, he says, Jesus, is that you? And he says, If that's you... Command me to come out of the water. Oh, all the other disciples said, Peter, sit down. <laughs> sit down. Don't make a fool out of yourself. What are you doing? Now Jesus is out there and he hollers back to Peter. Peter, don't make a fool out of yourself. Doesn't he? No, what does he say? Come on out. <laughs> What does Peter do? He takes a walk. He gets out of the boat. He walks on the water. I want you to know something. This is not some allegory. This is not some just metaphorical kind of story. This is fact. It's history. It happened. Peter walked on the water. He did the impossible. But you know why? Because he believed. Because he believed. For a moment, 
He had the faith that allowed him to walk on water. And as he was focused on Jesus, he was walking on the water. And then out of the corner of his eye, and in his ear he heard the sounds of the wind, and he caught the waves. And then he looked down, and he went... And he sank. So he got his eyes off the promise. He got his eyes off the promised one. He got his eyes off his... What? His shield. His reward. Jesus. And he began to sink, and he cries out, Jesus, save me. And Jesus lifts him back up. Then he walked back together to the boat. Abram's like that. He's tacking back and forth, but he doesn't get his eyes off the promise. He never sinks. He never goes down. He keeps his eye on the promise. Paul says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it was promised to him. So shall your offspring be. Now look at this. Without weakening in his faith, He's been 25 years without weakening in his faith now. He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. He looked the circumstances square in the face. That's what the emphasis is in the Greek passage. In the Greek he says, he looked it square in the face. Now people, Abram's faith was not some kind of stoic fortitude. He didn't stand there and say, I'm going to be strong. And we do that, don't we? Okay? We say, I'm not going to fall again. I'm not giving in to temptation again. I'm going to be strong. And then temptation comes like a little puff of a breeze and blows us right over, doesn't it? <laughs> that's not faith. That's just stoic fortitude. That's just trying to be strong. Nor is his faith some kind of um, emotional escapism. He doesn't find solace by denying the facts by ignoring the circumstances, by pretending he's not a hundred years old, and by pretending that he's not impotent. He is. See, he looks the facts square in the face. Doesn't deny them, doesn't ignore them. He says, yep, these are the facts, all right. But he doesn't dwell on them. He just acknowledges them, says, yep, that's the way it is. But, he said, he said. He looks back to his source. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. That's a permanent part, it's a perfect participle. His body is permanently dead. He is impotent to stay impotent. He knew there was no way, humanly speaking. And that Sarah's womb was also dead. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. Why didn't he waver through unbelief? Because for 25 years he was growing in his faith, being strengthened along the way. For 25 years, he had focused on verse 17. That's the key. The God who can what? Give life to the dead and call things that are not as though they are. He can call things into existence which did not previously exist. He can bring the dead back to life. That's the kind of God that Abraham learned to trust and have faith in. And so now, Paul can say, he did not waver through unbelief. And incidentally, when you experience doubt, and all of us do, 
Don't confuse doubt with unbelief. Sometimes people, are, their, their heads are full of doubt. They go, oh, well, I don't know if I did that. Look at doubt as something redemptive. Look at doubt as something that drives you back to the Word. Look at it as a productive tool to get you reaffirming and reevaluating the great truths that God has set forth in His Word. Don't confuse it with unbelief. Don't let doubt defeat you. Look at it as a wonderful mechanism to get you back reviewing the truth. Okay? So he doesn't waver through unbelief. He doesn't, he's not a double-minded man, as James talks about in the first chapter of his epistle. He has faith. He believes. Do you remember Noah? Oh, I love Noah. Here's a guy that God comes to. His faith, same kind of faith that Abraham had. The word of God came to him. When it came to him, what? They believed. And they acted on their belief. Now picture this. Here's Noah. Lives out in the middle of the desert. Lives out in the middle of the desert. God says, come, comes to him and says, build a boat. Build a boat. It's going to rain. It had never rained in the history of the world up to this point. He's got to build a boat in the middle of the desert. never rained. And then God tells him, and I want you to collect all the animals two by two. They're going to come to you. They're going to wonderfully cooperate with you, and they're going to go on board the boat. (laughs) Sure, God. But you know what? Noah believes. And Noah begins to build this boat. And it's going to rain. It's going to rain so hard and so long and so much water that it's going to be sufficient to float a boat the size of the Queen Mary. Now, put yourself in Noah's place. You could probably relate to the initial rush of enthusiasm, the initial euphoria when God comes and speaks to you and says, go do this thing, right? And that rush of euphoria would probably be sufficient to have you go out and order the lumber. But to be pounding on it for 120 years, because that's how long it took him to build the ark. (laughs) 120 years. Let me ask you a question. You're out there pounding on this ark. It's about 90 years now. (laughs) Can you believe that? It's about 90 years you're still pounding on this thing. And your neighbors are coming along. Every day they come, they say, Oh, 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 what are you doing? See, that's what the world is doing now. The world is really guffawing at the Christian community today, aren't they? Because of all the stuff that's gone down with all the evangelists and so forth. The world is going, ah, 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 It's enough to undermine your faith, isn't it? But you know, he's out there pounding on that thing and all his neighbors are coming around and they say, what are you doing? I'm building a boat. A boat? What for? Because it's going to rain. What's rain? You'll find out. You see? It's faith. Is Abram superhuman? No. He's just like us. He's just like us. He fumbles along just like us, but God honors his faith, and God works with him in spite of himself. He does the same thing for us. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? Let's finish it up. 
Verse 20, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith. The more impossible it became, the more exciting it got. The stronger his faith became. And he gave glory to God. Oh, he gave glory to God. God receives glory when we believe him. In 1 John, the 5th chapter, John writes this. He says, if we don't believe what God said about Jesus, if we don't trust him, then we make God out to be a liar. If we make God out to be a liar, he doesn't get glory. God is glorified when we believe him and when we act on our faith, on our belief. And it says here, Paul writes here, that Abram gave glory to God. You can just picture him. Here in the face of an absolutely humanly speaking impossible situation, he steps back and he says, wow, this is going to be awesome when it happens. Not if it happens. He says, glory to your name, God. Only you could bring this about. You see why God strings Abraham out 25 years? Makes him wait 25 years so it becomes abundantly clear, not only to Abraham, but to all of us who read about it, that it's God who did it. God who did the impossible. Not Abraham, not Sarah, not Hagar. God who did the impossible. That's the kind of God we worship. He says, and he was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. Are we fully persuaded? No. Most of us aren't fully persuaded. Most of us in the back of our mind have some little arena of reservation, some little area where we just don't quite fully believe that God truly, literally, has the power to do what he says, what he, says he can do. For all of our lip service about trusting God, many of us resort to our own abilities and capabilities. And we get off in some area of operation all on our own and we find out that our our abilities are woefully insufficient, and then we throw ourselves in desperation on God. Does God reject us? No. He just sweeps us up in his arms and brings us back to reality. I'm reminded of the three Hebrew young men in the book of Daniel, the third chapter. Remember that passage? They were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those were their Hebrew names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were their Babylonian names. Here they're off in Babylon in captivity. And King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most powerful, mighty kings ever to rule on the earth, commands them to bow down and worship a statue of him and to forsake their God. And he says, he calls them into his court. They refuse to do it. He says, if you don't do it, I'm going to throw you into this fiery furnace. They say, it's okay. It's okay. Throw us in the fiery furnace. It's all right. Our God is able to deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down. Now, let me ask you, would you say that they were fully persuaded? Yes. We stand there, we read that, we listen, we say, Ooh, all right, all right, amen, hallelujah. I mean, that's easy to say it here, sitting here, isn't it? We're not standing in front of a fiery furnace. When they got thrown in, the guys that threw them in died because the heat was so great. Just getting close to that thing killed them. 
And here they are. They're inside. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in. And he sees one, two, three, four. Who's there? The Lord. The Lord is there no matter. And he is able to bring about his promise. He's able to deliver his people. By faith! Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a great and mighty God. I thank you for your word, O Lord. Your word is precious to me. Lord, how as I read it and study it, and as I go from the first page to the last page, over and over and over, your great truth leaps off the pages. Lord, how you speak to our hearts. You say the same thing over and over and over and over. Believe me. Trust me. Give me your life. Father, I pray for every person here this morning. And I ask that as a loving Father that you would draw them close to you. Lord, they're your sheep, your people, your church. Strengthen them, I pray, O Lord. Help them to understand and to see that the trials, the ever-present trials in our life, are opportunities for the strengthening of our faith, not to blow us away. That we can rejoice in the midst of these trials. That we can be strengthened, we can persevere. Lord, we can work on, press on, to the upward calling, to the prize that you've called us to. We love you, O Lord, and we thank you for your most precious word to us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.